Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Okay. Uh, welcome back, everybody. Uh, was anybody not here last weekend? You weren't here? You weren't here? Great. Um, so this is sort of a continuation of last weekend, but certainly um, doesn't matter if you were not here. We're going to start fresh. Um, we did this little sutra uh, called A Single Excellent Night. Um, and so the, this sutra, this tiny little sutra, centers around a little poem. Um, and there are some ideas in that poem that I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about sort of the sutra in general. Um, uh, yeah, and any ideas that might come up. You know how it goes. Um, so there's this... Well, one of the things that I want to mention is that this is an interesting sutra, or sutta, because it was originally uh, written in Pali. Uh, this little poem, it appears to be like a pre-existing poem. Uh, these things in Pali, they're called a gatha. And so this little gatha, this little poem, may, just by looking, reading this, and knowing a little bit more about where it comes from, may have been like a pre-Buddhist little nugget. Because there's a way in which the Buddha's even presenting this as like, like, I, I heard this. Like, this, everybody knows this poem. Mm. So that's interesting unto itself that this poem might actually predate Buddhism in a way. Interesting there. Um, but what's fun about the sutra is that this is called the Bhadikarata Sutta or the Single Excellent Night. And then the next sutta in this collection, where it comes from, is called the Ananda Bhadikarata Sutta, which is an Ananda and a Single Excellent Night. And it's the same sutra in a way, but with a little different story. And it revolves around Ananda, the Buddha's cousin, and kind of how he came to hear the poem called A Single Excellent Night. And then what I wanted to read a little bit from tonight is the Mahakachana Badikarada Sutta, which is this monk named Mahakachana and how he came to hear this sutta. Um, so actually, let's start with that. It'll get us to the poem, and then we'll talk about some ideas from the poem, yeah? So this one reads, this is different than what you have in your hand, and actually the only reason why I gave you the sutra tonight is so that you'll have the actual little poem. That's like the important part. So thus have I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was living in Rajgriha, in the park of the hot springs. Uh, and then when it was near dawn, the Venerable Samihi went to the hot springs to bathe his limbs. After bathing, he came up out of the water and stood dressed in one robe, drying his limbs. Then, when the night was well advanced, a certain deity of beautiful appearance who illuminated the whole of the hot springs approached the Venerable Samidhi. Standing at one side, the deity said to him, Bhikkhu, do you remember the summary and exposition of one who has had a single excellent night? So, a lot going on just in that little paragraph alone, right? Um few little tidbits that I could share with you just from that little paragraph. So Samiti is one of the Buddhist followers. 
um, this line about uh, that he was after he was done bathing that he stood uh, dressed in one robe. Just a little FYI on Buddhism, right? Traditionally, Buddhists wear a, what's called a kasaya, uh, which is their robe, and it's actually three sheets, three rectangular sheets. Simple, really simple. Um, and one sheet you wrap around like a sarong, just wear like a skirt. And then the second one you wear over one shoulder, leaving the other shoulder bare. And then the third one, the larger one, you would wrap over your shoulder like a shawl. You would actually either use it as a prayer rug and sit on it. The, the third one is sort of like your outer robe, your major robe. The reason why I mention this, though, is, is that Buddhist monks, by the rule, hello, are never to be totally naked. They are always to have at least the one on all the time. And so even when they bathe, monks are traditionally, they would roll up their, their, their undergarment, their sarong, and kind of bathe and let it fall. They wouldn't kind of ever be totally naked. So that's just sort of... Even alone? Even alone, yes. All the time. That's the tradition. And so that's just a reference to that when it says that he was standing there in his one robe, drying his limbs. And then when the night was well advanced, a certain deity, this is a deva, right, of beautiful appearance who illuminated the whole of the hot spring, approached the venerable Samiti. So this, of course, is a great example in the Pali Canon, in the suttas of the Pali Canon, a lot of folks think all the gods and the, the devas and all of that are like Mahayana stuff. And folks think that the early Buddhism, oh yeah, they don't believe in gods and goddesses and all of that stuff. No, they actually are sometimes even more into the gods and goddesses than Mahayana, surprisingly. And so here we have this monk being visited by a god, a deity, a deva, a, whose appearance is illuminating the whole hot spring. And he's asking, this deity is asking, hey, do you know the poem? Do you know the, the single excellent night poem? Right? And um, the, the bhikkhu answers, friend, I do not remember the summary and exposition of one who has had an ex a single excellent night. But friend, do you remember the summary and exposition of one who has had a single excellent night? Bhikkhu, I too don't remember the summary and exposition of one who has had a single excellent night. Right, they've gotten a little too excellent, right? But Bhikkhu, do you, do you remember the stanzas of one who has had a single excellent night? Friend, I do not remember the stanzas of one who's had a single excellent night. But friend, do you remember the stanzas of one who's had a single excellent night? Bhikkhu, I too do not remember the stanzas of one who's had a single excellent night. But Bhikkhu, learn the summary and exposition of one who's had a single excellent night. Bhikkhu, master the summary and exposition of one who's had a single and excellent night. Bhikkhu, remember the summary and exposition of one who's had a single and excellent night. And Bhikkhu, the summary and exposition of one who's had a single night is beneficial. It belongs to the fundamentals of the holy life. That is what was said by the deity who thereupon vanished at once. So then, when the night was over, the Venerable Samiti went to the Blessed One, the Buddha, and after paying homage to him, he sat down at one side, told the Blessed One all that had occurred, and said, It would be good, Venerable Sir, if the Blessed One would teach me the summary and exposition of one who had a single excellent night. Then Bhikkhu, listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, Venerable Sir. And the, uh, the Venerable Samiti said, and the Blessed One said, let not a person revive the past. 
or on the future build his hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. Let him know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow, Mara may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep Mara and his hordes away. But, who, but one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is he, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. Boom. That's, that's it. That's, that's the poem. So let's... Um, yeah, let's do the poem. A couple of ideas from the poem that came up from last week. Um, and then we'll continue with this story because there's more to the little story about, uh, about this telling of it. Um, so again, the, the, the message is pretty straightforward, right? Let not a person revive the past. And I mentioned last week that there's an alternative translation of revive the past and is let not, let not a person run to the past, right? So don't retreat into the past or on the future build one's hopes for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Simple dimple, right? Just, that's it. Past is gone. Don't get hung up on it. Future, who knows? Don't get hung up on it. Be here now, right? Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. Let him know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. So let's just, we're going to hang out there for a little while. Insight with insight. So insight into presently arisen states, invincible and unshakable. That's what we want to do, right? So if there's, of course, if there's ever any questions, ideas, or comments, let them rip. But let's start. So insight we need to know. Real quickly. If you didn't know, what's being translated as insight Right? This is, in a way, what makes Buddhist meditation Buddhist meditation, is insight. I've mentioned this many times, that there's sort of two, two aspects to Buddhist meditation. It's what makes Buddhism Buddhism, is that they do this vipassana, or insight, and then they accompany it with something called calming, shamatha. And I often mention that sort of before the Buddha came along, in India, what meditation was, what yoga was, was shamatha. They had mastered the art of calming down. They had realized the benefits of calming down. They had seen the, the liberation of calming down, of just the minds just like, ah, da, 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 just going, 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 going. There's all kinds of metaphors, like a drunk monkey jumping from branch to branch. Whatever it is, the idea is the mind's just going, going, going. And so shamatha is, is calming it down, calming it down until actually no thought is taking place, that, that the wheel actually stops. And there's just peace, quietude, equanimity. There's all kinds of adjectives for that state. But that's shamatha. 
And again, before the Buddha, everybody thought that was it. But if you could calm all the way down, you would like, like you'd be free. You'd be liberated. Now, from our perspective, you would be like a rock. You would be sitting there, immovable, like not having any mental thought. And, and there's a way in which even Buddhism says, yeah, that's great. Like every, they're, they're not alert. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, I I may have shared this before, but it's always a helpful. Uh, it's some. It's helpful to share this. So there's a great book. It's not a great book. It's a good book, called uh, Zen in the Brain. I think the guy's last last name might be Austin, but don't quote me on that. But it's a big ass book called Zen in the Brain. Is it Austin? Austin yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right, so that that giant book. But in that giant book, he references a study, and it's a very interesting study of these sort of, I think it's three, three people. Don't quote me on all this, but the point of the study is, is what's important. Basically had a control subject, which was your average dude, average person. And then there was a meditator that practiced shamatha. Uh, I forget what type of Indian meditation they were doing, but it's just like extreme shamatha, extreme uh, uh, calming. And then um, they brought in a guy that was doing Zen, but that is, in a way, a type of Vipassana. Just know that. And what happens in the study is, is they take the, the average dude, the Shamatha calming guy, and the Zen monk, and they isolate them in these rooms, and they have them meditate, but the controlled Mr. Dude, he's just in the room. And... At, at a certain point, what the experiment is, is that they introduce a clamor, a loud noise into the room. Oh, and by the way, these three people, these three subjects are all EKG'd up, the brain waves, the, the pulse, the heart rate, all of that. And what the study shows is that upon the clamor, the, your average dude's mind goes, and then even after the clamor's done, his brain waves and heart and everything are up here, and it takes however long, for him to get back where he was before the clamor. The Shamatha guy, the, that guy, his EKJ goes through the clamor as if he didn't even hear it. The Zen monk, his goes like that. And I thought, when I read that, I was like, man, there you go. The idea is, yeah, you can calm yourself to the point where... Kind of, like the person in that state will say, no, it's bliss or whatever. But there is this a perspective, a Buddhist perspective that says, no, no, no. There's a even further, which is that you can have that peace and be active in the world. And so where the sound enters your ears, the sound enters your brain, you recognize what happens. But the idea of self-mastery in Buddhism and Zen Buddhism is that then your mind is right back to where you would like it to be or where you have put it. Because again, the idea is, is that the Zen guy and the Shamatha guy were doing their practice. They were doing their meditation deep in it. And what the Zen guys look like is that his mind is so like solid, perhaps in, you know, unshakable is an adjective we could use. So he hears the noise but is not agitated by it. And so that's a good kind of example of this dual form of Buddhism where you actually do need to learn how to calm down, but there's a moment of re-engaging the mind. That's called vipassana, where you re-engage it and then 
what is called insight is also sometimes called like analysis, inquiry. Vipassana is this kind of like investigation into the mind. But you can only do it from a calm state is the idea. And so this poem is referencing this type of insight, vipassana, a looking into this world, not retreating from it, not closing off the sense doors, as they say, and entering some rock state or coma state, but it's actually about being in this world but having a certain relationship to it. Please, yeah. I, um, I believe myself to have read about another study that was done that was similar, and it might have even involved uh, that French um, monk, Matthew, Matthew Ricard, is that his name? Anyway, Ricard, yeah. Yeah, and it was where they eat bird for it, I know, right? Um, they eat, they eat, it was like a similar thing where they had, um, a, I think they had a control, they, I think they just had a control and an insight meditation guy, mm-hmm. not somebody who was living their life in a cave and blissful and not dealing with the world, uh, but uh, someone who, who practiced uh, Vipassana, okay? And what they did was they did something that was a pain stimulus. And the person and the person who was just your regular Joe guy, like there was, they knew they were going to get it too. Had this anticipatory, like he was wired up to the ECG mm. and all of that good stuff. And he had the kind of like the stress, and and they could see all the mind the mind moving and being kind of tormented ahead of time. They feel the pain, and then they kind of if there's a lasting after effect before they come back to steady state. Mm-hmm. And then with the practitioner, it was like nothing beforehand, and then feeling actually feeling the negative you know sensation, this this painful um, uh, stimulus. And actually feeling it more in the moment when they had it, feeling it be more, and maybe they were more aware, deep, feeling it, examining it, but then coming back to base way quicker. Like, mm-hmm. you know, went up and felt it more, but then came back down and none of the anticipatory, like, anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I would, it sounds, sounds similar. Yeah, and, and what that reminds me of is that this sort of pre-Buddhist type of meditation that was focused on this type of calming but also we're talking the type like you you could walk across the coals because like i don't feel it i'm that sort of detached and that type of no no that's exactly the point the buddha did all of that you know the story of of the buddha is that he walked on the coals he hung upside down he did all of these things and came to the realization that that you don't need to uh flagellate oneself in to get to enlightenment like that's actually an old idea that the buddha sort of kind of came along was like, yo, everybody time out. We don't need to be starving ourselves. We don't need to be doing, that's not the the way out. There was an idea that to just like flagellate oneself and go through all of these austerities to the point where you, you know, bring it on. I'm, I'm gone. I'm gone. Just bring it. The Buddha was like, that's not, that, that's something else. That's like lax engagement though. Like you That's borderline masochism, lax engagement. Yeah, I mean, there's there's all kinds of things that Buddhism sees as problematic with that. If only, if if only the the kind of violence aspect that the Buddhism is very into being compassionate towards oneself, as well as of course other beings, but also oneself. So the concentration meditation, it's like step one, really, and then you get to the insight, which seems, insight meditation, which seems like a deeper... 
and there are schools of thought that you kind of have to master some shamatha before that. There's another school that they're like wings of a bird, and if you've just one, you'll just fly in circles. So you kind of need both to fly. Different, actually, different schools of thought of Buddhism say you can do them simultaneously. You can do them one or the other. It's where schools split off into their uh, or teachers split off because he teaches that way. He teaches both at the same time, and that's his school of thought. So, okay, so let's get the, let, what about this insight? Insight into what? Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. That's, that's, that's it. Is he referring to an internal state? No, no. In fact, last week I, I struggled with explaining presently arisen states. I chose all the wrong examples. I got, it was the, my go-to example. So we're going to talk about presently arisen states. I believe this yana is the same as like the Mahayana, which is a vehicle. And actually, V, this uh, root V means to see, and this modular kind of conjugates the V into an analytical type of seeing. So it's not just a seeing seeing, it's an analytical type of seeing. So it's the way of analytical sight. Okay. If you were to chop it up. And what we're curious about is a presently arisen states. Okay. So this is what in this type, this little poem is encouraging us to not look at the past, not don't run to the past, don't put your hopes on the future, but with insight, see each presently arisen state. Okay. Here is a great example of a presently arisen state. Back to the classics. <laughs> what is this? Yeah. Right. What is that? Right. Okay. If you haven't seen this magic trick before, you're in for a treat. So here, what is this again? It's a fist. It's a fist. All right. Maybe. Maybe. It depends. It depends. Right. But we've, we're going to say it's a fist. All right. So for now, keep your eye on the fist. Here it goes. You ready? <gasps> Thank you. Where did the fist go? Is it in my pocket? Yeah. Is it in my pocket? Yeah. It's not in my pocket. Where did it go? Like where did your lap go? Where did my lap go? Exactly. I, and I know it seems simple, and I know it's not really a magic trick, but it actually is a magic trick. Like, huge. I just made something disappear. Like, poof! Right? So the idea is for now, oh, there it is again, right? There's that fist again. And then, boom, magic. The fist is gone. No? So what this is, this fist, this is a presently arisen state. Right? There, there, there's the fist. No? Here it is. It's, I asked what it was. All of you knew what it was. You know, there was jokes and all that, but you all know what I was talking about. But the thing is, is what the magic trick, though, is, is that when I make it disappear, if you think it's in my pocket, 
right? Then you don't understand the nature of the fist, right? Because the idea is like if the if this was re something real, some like something real, right? Then it must have come from somewhere, and it must go somewhere. So I'm going to ask you again: Where did the fist go? Where did it go? We're that yeah that's that's you're on the right road that's the right that's towards the right answer indeed indeed so or it never existed that's even closer this is now we're getting really hot right but the idea again is is that if you are looking for where it went you don't you don't get it <laughs> you you are what the Buddhists would call ignorant meaning you don't understand the nature of what's going on you thought this was a like something real, but it's actually a conditional state. It's, it, it's real, but it's not constant. Indeed. Indeed. So it is real, but not constant. <laughs> this is actually, honestly, for real, where Buddhism is, is like, no, the middle road between existent and non-existent. The notion that it's real and then it's not real. It's the it's in between real and not real. Can you say it's a previously arisen state? I mean, as far there as is that, only, no, only such now. a thing as presently arisen. Here it is. Behold the fist. This is a presently arisen state. It didn't come from anywhere. Oh, it didn't go anywhere. Very good. Yeah. It didn't go anywhere. It didn't come from anywhere. It just is here now. This is a presently arisen state of my fingers or whatever, right? We're, we're going to go deeper with this, but... Does it both exist and not exist simultaneously? Yeah. I mean, okay. I got to put on the brakes. Because we do, we do this every time. <laughs> Here's what we're doing. Um, That it never did exist. Never did in that sense. Afterwards, you're like this, and you're saying, where did it go? And so the question is, did it ever exist? Yeah. So you said it's illusory. There's a way in which that's kind of like an oxymoron or a paradox. It, what, what it? What it? It's illusory. There's a way in which that still holds on to it. And so then to say, uh, there wasn't, it, it wasn't there to begin with. That's sort of, you know, closer to its empty, emptiness, which we're going to get to that. All these bodhisattvas, all these bodhisattvas. You're so. Here's what we're doing, and it's tricky. It's tricky when you're, you're when when it's me because I'm I don't I don't have a school like I'm 
kind of know all these different schools. So this sutra is a Hinayana or Theravada, old school Buddhism, Pali, uh, South India, you know, and then Mahayana, new school, Sanskrit, North India, um, you know, whole, this is revolutionary kind of thing that started to happen a few hundred years after Buddhism got going, is everybody sort of took these ideas and, and just went further with them. And so you get this new school. So there's a way in which I want to introduce you to how to read this sutra in its original context as an old school Buddhist thing. And in a way, I want to talk about what old school Buddhism means by a presently arisen state. But then what I really want to talk about is a more Mahayana way of reading this. Okay. And what I mean by that is, is that old school Buddhism said, yep, boom, fists. Guess what? No fists. The fist is a, it's a presently arisen state. It's conditional, meaning it's conditional on my fingers being curled a certain way. Uh, you know, is this still a fist? We have the thumb out. I, you know, arguably it's still a fist. Arguably it's not. So it's like, at what point does it become the fist? But so it's conditional, conditional. So one way of seeing it, old school way, is is like, this is a conditional state that is really flimsy. Oh, it like disappeared just like that. This is a conditional state that is just like a fist. Right? But from the old school perspective, the process of my fist coming into existence and out of existence is like, it's instantaneous. My, again, like my lap, gone. Old school Buddhism says, yeah, and if you wait around long enough, you'll see how conditional that is. Like, you got to wait a little while, but that's going to break up too, just like my fist. And there won't be a chair there anymore. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. But when it's gone, it's gone. Like, it didn't, the chair didn't go anywhere, right? It just isn't anymore. But it'll take a while. So old school Buddhism still, in a way, believed that these things exist, meaning external objects, and that... They're impermanent. They're going to break apart eventually. And so it's a presently arisen state that's just like a fist. Meaning it is still just a concept being thrown on a pattern, if you will. This is just a pattern. Right? Your pattern recognition. It's like, oh, I've seen that type of thing before. That's called a fist. I've seen something with four legs and a back and a bottom and I can sit down on. That's called a chair. So the label of chair, the label of fist, the conditionality of the fist, the conditionality of the chair, makes them equally conditional. But old school Buddhism, in a way, still believes in, in like this and this falling apart. And so because this will fall apart, don't you know, get all attached to it. Just, just let it be. Right? That's old school Buddhism. New school Buddhism was what you were describing, which is there's a third or another element here, which is the observer. So the conditions are 
five fingers being curled into a ball, but there's also the condition of me viewing it, projecting onto it, the meaning of fist, all of that. So that it's conditional upon me playing along. So that's, that's where that idea that I just articulated is where you start to get to the, um, what's called essencelessness or anatman, meaning no self, or emptiness. This is really like the AR example, like the fist not only needs the, the exactly. fist, it, it's not even happening here, it's for a year. It's happening in the in-between. Right, because the, the notion fist needs a, a perceiver, needs a thinker, thinking fist, if that makes sense. Like Mahayana takes the, the viewer more seriously and their role in all of this. Old school Buddhists sort of still believed in a world of objects and things that were problematic. They were sources of our suffering. We desire them, and so we get attached to them. But this old school sort of still believed that all of this was out there to be craved, to be wanted. And the new school, again, put the human mind under the microscope and was like, whoa, we're, we're part of this. In, insofar, as, insofar as this new school of Buddhism, insofar as this came on the world scene easily 2,000 years ago, you have heavily developed Mahayana ideas 200 BC, easy. 100 BC, definitely. Around the year zero, 2018 years ago, it was a full bloom, this un understanding of the role of the, the viewer so around 2,000 years later, some German guy named Heisenberg would, in an experiment, realize, oh my God, I'm part of the experiment. Oh, it's not just objects out there, but I'm part of it as the observer. What do we do now, Einstein? What do we do? This happened like last week here. It happened 2,000 years ago in India where they were like, oh wow, we're... We're part of the equation, huh? Well, that's dependent origination. That's, well, yes. Dependent origination is that the fist is dependent, but the real dependent origination is the, the role the observer right. is playing in that. And when we're talking about the fist, we're talking about the chair. And yep. the five standards, we're talking about form. Right? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Glad you brought that up. Because that's just form. That's not feeling, perception, formations, or consciousness. Mm -hmm. Correct. In terms of that. Okay. Mm, yeah, it gets tricky. It gets okay. tricky. But okay. for now. But I'm glad you brought up the skandhas. Because I want to get back to the sutra. But I want to make sure we're all comfortable with presently arisen states. Understood two ways. <laughs> right? And so the idea is, is that keep in mind this idea of the presently arisen state 
is like things as they are right now. And like I said, the, 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 the fist didn't come from anywhere, right? And it doesn't go anywhere. It, it just sort of is because of the conditions. The conditions are proper for there to be a fist. Oh, the conditions are no longer proper for there to be a fist. That is like the more proper Buddhist way of understanding, not where'd the fist go? Oh, there's a fist. Oh, it's understanding conditions in that, in that way, right? So if you keep that in mind, maybe we shouldn't revive the past because there is no past, really, for really. <laughs> if you, because this fist thing I'm talking about, this dependent origination thing goes for everything, all the time, always. And so presently arisen states is all we have. The past is a fiction, total fiction. The future is a fiction, total fiction. Presently arisen states are fiction, actually. But at least they're like what we're dealing with, not total you know, figments of the imagination, right? So let not a person revive the past. Please. When you talk about old school and new school, yeah. are you, I, I don't think this is true, but are you inferring that the new school is, I don't want to say better, but has like, hey, has, can we, can we, it, does Buddhism it still embrace both old yes. school and new school? Yes, and, and this is what, schools, it's not that so, one is more involved or clear or, a, you know, yes. a deeper more accurate understanding. Yes, and what happens is, this is a fascinating history that I'll make really short, is you get a bunch of Europeans studying this thing that have notions of Catholic-Protestant divides, notion of left and right houses of parliament, notion of conservative and liberal. And so what do they go find in Buddhism? Oppositional sex going at each other. Oh, this must be the, this must be them, and this must be them, and they create a total fiction of Buddhist history where there are these two types of Buddhism competing with one another. Not the case at all, and and it's a total application of that European mentality onto it. When actually they see it as flowerings of ideas, full more like just idea of developing. There's a total recognition that somebody doing the eightfold path is, yeah, do it, buddy. Like, that's your karma. In this life, you're like, so there is a way that the Mahayana views it as a little self-helpy, yeah. a little too focused on the self. Yeah. But they still think it's great for everybody to work on themselves. Like Buddhism never wants anybody to not meditate. Yeah, follow the Eightfold Path. But from a Mahayana perspective, it's like, but if you really want to know, there's actually like some other crazy stuff going on. It's crazy. But yeah, they don't say it with derision towards... different schools. Total different schools and even not different. It's just sort of like uh, angles, if you know what I mean. Like not even... There's just not oppositional. And this is confirmed by all these accounts of Chinese monks going to India and living in monasteries and seeing so-called old school monks living with new school monks and they have totally different beliefs. But the most important thing is that they wear their robes the same way. 
but they can believe like whatever they want. Oh, I'm a bodhisattva. Oh, really? I'm just trying to be an arhat. And so actually a lot of these texts that show the old school and new school living side by side have only recently been translated and everybody's like, huh, they weren't as oppositional as we thought. And it's because what we thought was given to us. Okay, that was a lot of ideas. Uh, just would it be fair to say that the Mahayana would not really dispute anything about the older or the, the, yep. the, the they don't say, well, they're wrong, like maybe the Protestants say, exactly. the Catholics are wrong. They just say, well, that's all good. We love it. But maybe we got some newer ideas that maybe we want, we want to add on. Mm -hmm. It's so, more likely that an old school Theravadan would say that Mahayana isn't Buddhism. That, it, that's likely to happen, that they'll be like, nah, -uh, that is not Buddhism. But the other way is very rare. Just because Mahayana, I mean, extreme Mahayana sees Christianity as Buddhism is disguised for Jews. What? Say that again? <laughs> <laughs> like real Mahayana sees Christianity as Buddhism in disguise for oh. Jews. Yeah, put that together. <laughs> Yeah, that enlightenment, the, the Mahayana, what they're really getting at, if I understand it correctly, is enlightenment is where there's enlightenment. And if it's coming from this person's mouth and it's liberative, okay. liberating, it's Mahayana. Mahayana is the practice of not getting hung up on names. And so to be like, no, that's Christian. Jesus is just Christian. To hold on to that, well, that's very... Something of you, right? That's real clinging of you. Uh -huh. But to be like, yeah, wisdom is wisdom. To have that broad maha view is Mahayana. Yeah, it's very interesting. They came up with this idea of like, like a nameless doctrine and that anywhere wisdom is, that's what we're talking about. And it doesn't matter if it's Taoism or this or that. It's like when they're talking about certain ideas, that's the wisdom. And we can call that Mahayana for, you know, simplicity's sake, but... Do you think it's a Western kind of a European idea, too? Like this, I think that people will, depending on who you are and your proclivities, think that some, because something is older, it is more pure or more correct, or that something that is newer is more nuanced and is a, pr is a progression mm. of something that's older. And, is, and so you, you could take either side with that, and there are these sides the same Indeed. way. And that's, I call that originitis. <laughs> to have the affliction that you need the most original, and that if it came even a few days after the original, the mind that wants, oh no, I want the two days before that then. Because they sold out. Or something must have happened, so I need to have the oldest. That desire is an interesting one. I don't say good or bad, but it's an interesting desire to, to need or want to have the most original. It's also a need or desire to want to have the most up-to-date, and that it's like, oh, I only want to read books from 21st century. I'm not going to read any fiction from the 20th century. I need that newest. I'll, I mean, we could go be here all night with that desire to have either the newest or the oldest. Like, it goes either way. But it's a funny desire, right? What does Maha mean? Great. Big. There's this really interesting irony in what you're saying of, like, the, the dementia homes, or, like, we chop things up, and we're doing, or you said, 
the west because we're talking about something like Protestant Catholic, which has everything I think with and we're doing that with this tradition that is explicitly trying to not do that and not split things up. And it speaks to but we see it that way and try to like put that framework on it because that's the way that we're used to finding things. And it speaks to exactly the dependent origination that we're talking about is like the way that it's kind of like it's like the way that we we have all these time is money metaphors, so that's how we conceptualize time because that's how we talk about time. Mm -hmm. like, um, there's other ones that are like that. So then if we in the West frame everything as this opposition, sure. then that's how we see everything. Yep. Another example of what you're saying. Yes. And there's all Absolutely. And there is a way that Yes, there's these like European ways of doing things that have been applied to Buddhism, this and that. But there's also just this human way of clinging to stuff. And that's what Buddhism is talking about. And it doesn't matter what culture you're from, what time you're from. If you have eyes and ears and nose and tongue, a body and a mind, you cling a certain way. We still like to and, and do ninja hands and cut up yeah. the world into things. And yeah, Europeans cut it up this way and these people cut it up that way. But that process of cutting, dividing the world up, that is the problem. And that's another way that like you only, a thing is only the thing that you see it as it is because of the way that you're seeing it. Indeed. Like it's not inherent to Buddhism that there are these schools. It's just because of the way that we're looking at it. Yes. And there's a, a saying in Buddhism that whether, I, I, I can't, do it justice, but it says whether a Buddha appears in the world or not, this stuff is going. This stuff is true, is like sort of the idea. In particular, the Four Noble Truths, the relationship between clinging and suffering. They say whether a Buddha appears in the world to let us know that or not, that is what's going on. I mean, to me, it seems like I mean, Buddhism is it's the idea that it's even a religion is super Western. To me, it is a philosophy more than anything else. I mean. You have my, I mean, you have Theravada, and it's more of a practice, and that sort of makes it more kind of religious and more for you. But mm -hmm. I mean, Buddhism and all these writings, these sutras, this is all philosophy. This is Socrates chicken, chilling out, having fake conversations with people. I mean, indeed, indeed. However, wow, I mean, there's so much. Wow. So, yeah, you've got this big question of what is religion that, that floats out there, like. You know, what, what do we mean by that? When we use that word, there's that. I think what I was saying before about the way that Europeans interacted with Buddhism and then they did something to it, a few things have happened in, through the course of history. One thing that has happened recently is that mainly Jesuits in like Vietnam, parts of China and Japan, but then also some other missionizing folks going out what happens is like Vietnam's a good example. So Vietnam gets missionized, they get really Christianized. And then what happens is, is that Buddhism in Vietnam starts to get practiced very Catholic, where they appuse and they kneel and it's a service and there's a big altar. And, it, and if you go to these things, you're like, am I in a Catholic church? Because this feels like Catholicism. And there's a way in which, yeah, because that has actually been imported like we're talking like 14th 15th century colonization importing these ideas and then shaping buddhism in a certain way right and then it turns into this whole thing too where the buddhists start acting like christians because they know they'll get either not burned to the ground or they'll get some sort of like 
support from whatever government is occupying them. It gets really complicated. But what's even more interesting, though, is that if you go all the way back, though, uh, the whole incense up and down the thing, rosaries, uh, repentance, all these things are actually Buddhist that the Christians and the Catholics got from the Buddhists. A rosary bead is a mala bead that the Christians, Catholics, got from the Buddhists. The whole, pro like, repentance and all these things are actually originally Buddhist. And so when you do the history and you look at Buddhism being practiced in forever, I mean, it looks very religious, meaning there's a belief in an all-powerful Buddha that is omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, everywhere that you can pray to, for some reason eats smoke, enjoys incense, that helps the process. But what do you want to call religion? What do you, you know, I don't know. But is that from the sutras or is that from people just You've got sutras with the Buddha telling you how to make a statue mm -hmm. of himself and worship it. Now, did he really say that? I, I don't know, but there's sutras having, right. there are sutras from, I mean, these are early too, but there are sutras from thousands of years ago with somebody called the Buddha talking about how to make a Buddha statue and worship it. And in fact, there, th that practice of making a Buddha statue, and usually it's a baby Buddha statue, and then they, they pour milk over the baby Buddha statue for fertility. Buddhists don't, don't want babies. <laughs> They're supposed to be celibate. But you have a Buddhist ritual for fertility? But yeah, you do. Yeah. And so religion's tricky. Right. You know, I mean, I, I'm... I'm first and foremost a scholar of religion that sort of specialized in Buddhism. So I, I know all the discourse and anthropology about religion, and it gets really complicated really quickly about what do you mean by that. Yeah. Because, I had a conversation please. with a senior Zen, uh, priest at San Francisco Zen Center uh, just a few months ago about this. And, it, and maybe this is an oversimplification, but she said, yeah, it's a philosophy, basically. But when you get into ordinations and things like, and being priests, then it's sort of, she said, that's how, to us, that's when it shifts over to also, also doing the religion. And that would be a one, one way to define religion is yes. institutionally. Yes, yes, yes. Which is, a, in terms of anthropology, there are those, that school of thought, they're like, okay, right. well, let's call right. the rites and the rituals and the ordinations and the institutions, let's call that religion, okay. and then futz around with names for this other thing, spirituality okay. or, you know, what have you. But there's also the non-institutional one. Which is, you know, if I brush my teeth every day a certain way and I ascribe it with meaning and significance and a larger, you know, all of a sudden that can be religious. And that would be a more, you know, there's other anthropologists that get into like, oh, no, no, it's a, a repetitive actions with meanings that point to larger worldview and these things. Anyways, gets complicated. No, no, yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, but everybody want a few more ideas tonight? Yeah, so let's, a little more, so we get the Buddha, he gives the, uh, the poem, and that's what the Blessed One said, having said this, the sublime one rose from his seat and went to, into his dwelling. So he just recites the poem, right? So then, soon after the Blessed One had gone, the bhikkhus considered this. They said, 
Now, friends, the Blessed One has risen from his seat and gone into his dwelling after giving a summary in brief without expounding the detailed meaning. Now, who who will expound this in detail? Then they considered, ah, the venerable Mahakachana is praised by the teacher and esteemed by, by his wise companions in the holy life. He is capable of expounding the detailed meaning. Suppose we went to him and asked him the meaning of this poem. And so then they all go to Mahakachana. And Mahakachana is famous for this uh, thing where he says, friends. Um, it's as if as though a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, thought that heartwood should be sought among branches and leaves of a great tree standing possessed of heartwood. And so it is with you. The Buddha was right there. You could have asked him, and now you're coming to me. You're looking at, to, the, to the leaves and the branches for the heartwood. I'm just a leaf and a branch. You had your chance with the Buddha. So it's a, fun, it's a funny thing that Mahakachana always says. Like, why are you asking me? The Buddha's right there. But he always does. And so he gives his interpretation. Now, for those of you that weren't here, you have the poem. The Buddha gives the poem, which is don't run to the past. Don't build your hopes on the futures. With insight, observe presently arisen states, invincibly, unshakably. Um, and then he says, what does that mean to run to the past? What does that mean? And And in the very original, the first version of it, so these are the the five skandhas, right? So these are the five skandhas, right? This is basic Buddhism, that we think we're one self, one single unity unit, but we're actually a collection of bodily material, bodily sensation, mental perceptions, mental conditioning, and consciousness, right? And the way that the original sutra reads is... Perception, I'm sorry. I, I yeah, I know. This is... This is, so it's samya. And the way that I described samya was that when you are presented with a situation, you do not just see one item. You actually take in a whole, the whole situation and the mind sort of cuts it up into meaning. And I use the, the example that one group of people that know a lot about samya is uh, advertisers because they know that the scene will be here, but if there's a little Coke bottle in, over in the corner, your mind will see it. Even though you, the, in, the entertainment's here, advertisers know that we take in the whole thing, and we are always doing that. And so Samya is tricky, truly tricky. So the way the original sutra read is we get the poem, don't run in the past, or in the future, presently arisen states. Oh, you have a question? Yeah. Cool. Uh, I was just wondering why it's inappropriate for me to say 
Your legs up are fine, but not your shoes on the chair. Not the bottom of your shoes on the chair. It's considered not respectful of meditation time. And we're just trying to preserve the chairs. Um, so in the original one, he says, don't, says bump, don't go to the past, don't go to the future, just presently arisen states, and who knows, Mars is going to come along, so um, no, nothing you can keep his hordes away. And then to explain this, it says, well, how, how, does, how do you run to the past? And the Buddha explains it in terms of the five skandhas. And he says, okay, uh, you can run to the past the same, uh, your physical form, the matter that you think is yourself, right? Well, you can run to the past by saying, oh, when I was young, when I was healthy, when my body looked better. Now, not so much, right? So that is a way of running to the past is by thinking in terms of your physical form or, oh, back in the day I was in Hawaii and I was having such great sensations. It was warm and sunny. Uh, Samya is this idea of perceiving reality as a totality and there's a way in which maybe you're not thrilled with this situation and so it's like, oh, you know, back in the day when I was in Hawaii and it was beautiful because I was seeing palm trees and I was seeing the sunrise. Uh, mental conditioning, also hearkening back to days maybe when I wasn't so jaded towards reality, right? When I was more open-minded, more opt- uh, I was more optimistic when I was younger, right? And then consciousness, also this idea of running to a past consciousness, running to a past mind. And so the Buddha is saying, well, then the Buddha goes on saying, how, how do you not run to the past? By not looking to your past bodily form, your past sensations. That, that. And then how do you run, how do you uh, build your hopes on the future? Well, you say, well, I'm going to work out all of 2019 so that in a year from now, I'm going to be ripped six pack. That's setting one's hopes in terms of bodily form on the future. Sensations is I'm going back to Hawaii and we're going to get back to the warm weather right? Perception, same thing. I'm going to be in a better situation. I'm going to feel better about myself and I'm going to be having better thoughts in the future, right? So this is the way the Buddha does it. I want to quickly, we have a nice little chunk of time, introduce you to the way Mahakachana explains the same sutra. So they all go to him. He says, what are you, what are you talking to me for? You should be talking to the Buddha. He says, all right, I'll tell you. Okay, so this is his explanation of how he does it. And so how, friends, does one run to the past? One's consciousness becomes bound up with desire and lust there in the past, thinking my eye was thus in the past and forms were thus in the past. And because one's consciousness is bound up with desire and lust, one delights in that. And when one delights in that, one revives the past. So one's consciousness becomes bound up with desire and lust in the past. They're thinking, my ear was such. And, the, and my ear was thus in the past and sounds were thus in the past. My nose was thus in the past and odors were such my tongue and flavors, my body and tangibles, 
and my mind was thus in the past, and my mind objects were, the, were thus in the past. And because one's consciousness was bound up with desire and lust, one delights in that, and when one delights in that, one revives the past. That's how one revives the past. So what Mahakachana is doing is that he's doing it in a slightly different way. He's not dealing with the five skandhas. He's dealing with something called ayatanas. Translated as bases. And there are So what he does is that he deals with these ayatanas. And so this is another way of that Buddhism understands the way this world works. The five skandhas, form, sensations, perceptions, conditioning, and consciousness. This is the personal way that this is operating. Meaning my perception of reality as thus, like this, is based on the five skandhas. That's how this is happening for me as an individual. What this explains, the ayatanas, of which there are traditionally 12, these six and these six, these are called the internal sense bases, these are the external sense bases, right? And so you've got internal sense base, which is the eye, you have the external sense base, which is color, shape, size, Things like that, form, physical matter, sounds, sense, taste. And what happens is, is that when eyeballs come into contact with light, basically light, with form, there arises an eye consciousness. and an ear consciousness, and a nose consciousness, and a tongue consciousness, and body consciousness, and yes, a mind consciousness. And so these, so these six plus these six plus these six equal what are called the 18 datus, and this, this formula is all there is in Buddhism. This is all of your reality. There are 18 realms, dimensions, spheres. Datus is usually translated as a sphere. And 
And what Monica Chana does is says, ah, how do you not run to the past? Don't run to back when my eyes were having such and such sensations. Back when my ears were having such and such sensations. Back when my nose, back when my tongue, back when my body, or back when my mind was having such and such sensations. Such and such consciousness. And, and if you haven't heard this one before, this word consciousness, this is this, vijnana. Buddhism understands this consciousness is actually a really complicated thing where the eyeball itself is generating a consciousness, a conscious awareness of what it's, quote, seeing, right? You can actually, Buddhism talks in you know, this really complicated way about kakshas uh, vijnana, eye consciousness. We would just say seeing, Hearing. We would say just seeing, hearing, but we, because of the way we understand the way this is working, would put all of those operations in the brain. Oh, I'm seeing with my brain. I'm hearing with my brain. But Buddhism says, no, we actually have these eyeballs, and these eyeballs are actually made of form. That's this first skandha. These are all made of form. Actually, the mind is not we have these eyeballs, and then there's light, and when they get together, there arises in the eyeball a little awareness, a little awareness of like, oh, that's bright. Oh, that's dark over there. Or the sounds, oh. And then sends those seeings, those hearings, those smellings, those actually get sent to the brain. And what these dharmas are, what these, quote, mind objects are, are the images, reflections, presented to it by the other organs. We would probably call that neural impulses. Like you get electric nerve impulses out of the eye, nose, all the sensors and receptors, right? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know always how helpful corollaries are, but. Um, but the I idea here is, is that there is, there's eyeballs, a bunch of them, right? Ears, noses, tongues, bodies, and brains. And there's light forms, sound, sense, taste, tactiles, and then these ideas. And when those get together, there emerges eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose, tongue, body. And then mind consciousness, these things emerge. And again, this is all that's going on, kind of in terms of Buddhist phenomenology. It's just the interaction of forms, hitting eyeballs, generating consciousnesses, right? And again, Kachana, uh, he says, in the past, I had, you know, don't do that. Looking in the past and saying, oh, I was seeing such things in Hawaii, right? I was, I was hearing such beautiful music. I was smelling such beautiful things in the past, right? Same thing, he says, goes for the future. Don't put your hopes on the future of when my eyes will be seeing such and such a thing, when my uh, ears will be hearing such and such a thing, right? Or, oh, I can't wait for dinner tonight. It's going to taste so good. Or the body. I can't wait for that massage later on. That's going to feel so good. 
And then, of course, the mind's like, oh, I can't wait to be thinking about those things. Oh, you know, I can't wait to have dinner with so-and-so and hear what they have to say. I can't wait for my mind to be stimulated that way. Mahagachana, he's saying, the way I interpret this poem is, is that's how you don't run to the past and don't run to the future, is that you don't, you understand each of these relationships. So, oh look, there's the chair again, right? It looks like the chair again. Here's my eyeball coming into contact with the form and there arises this eye consciousness. But I want to always remember, I erased it, but the presently arisen state idea, this idea of the presently arisen state is this suchness, this, that it is here, that it is being, and that that chair has no past. It has no future. This, this that, there it is. That's the chair. That's the presently arisen state. But there's one other place to go from here. Building hopes upon the future. Da, da, da. And how friends, how friends, and how, my friends, is one vanquished in regard to presently arisen states. So forget about the past. We're over the past. Forget about the future. But now what about the actual present of fists and chairs and things like that, right? How is one vanquished? How is one destroyed by presently arisen states, right? How is one vanquished in regard to presently arisen states? In regard to the eye and forms that are presently arisen, one's consciousness is bound up with desire and lust for that which is presently arisen. Because one's consciousness is bound up with desire and lust, one delights in that. And when one delights in that, one is vanquished in regard to presently arisen states. Same goes for ears, nose, tongue, and flavors, body and tangibles, the mind and mind objects that are presently arisen. One's consciousness is bound up with desire and lust for that which is presently arisen. Because, because one's consciousness is bound up with desire and lust, one delights in that. Uh, and when one delights in that, one is vanquished in regard to presently arisen states, and that's how one is vanquished. And how is one invincible in regard to presently arisen states? In regard to the I and forms that are presently arisen, one's consciousness is not bound up with desire and lust for that which is presently arisen. Because one's consciousness is not bound up with desire and lust, one does not delight in that. When one does not delight in that, one is invincible in regard to presently arisen states. And it goes, of course, on to the ear all the way. And, of course, the idea here is, is that if you understand, if we got the fist, so we understand the fist didn't come from anywhere. So there's no past fist to delight in, to be attached to. It, it wasn't there before. This fist isn't going anywhere. So there's no fist to be had there. But what about the presently arisen fist, the one that we all can see? Mahakachana is saying, do not have desire and lust for even the presently arisen. And you could stop there with just don't do it. But we've already been through the idea of this being a label. Are you attached to the label or are you attached to this, to the... What are you attached to, is the idea. No, no. no. Um, isn't desire and lust like necessarily being in a future state? Because that's like, I don't have it right now. If I'm desiring it, it's like thinking about a future in which I... 
I would, I would agree with you entirely that these, these um, uh, the general, you know, I, I've said this before, the general move of Buddhism when it talks about lust, hatred, and the lust and hatred are really misunderstood, right? I mean, lust is like a form of what they're talking about, but there's just two movements in Buddhism, like bring it towards me or get it away from me. It's a sound I don't like. Get it away from me. It's a, it's a, song, a sound I like. Yeah, bring it here. And that's, there's just two movements. And then Buddhism, there's all kinds of like, it's a spectrum where desire can be lustful. It can be all kinds of things. But it's a general motion of come here. Clinging. And then love, or hate. Yeah, I can hate you. But what Buddhism's actually talking about is like, pushing away and that pushing away can get violent and extreme where I, I, I so want you away. I'll kill you. I want you that far away. Right. But the initial movement is just uh, get away or give me more of it. And that's where I was going to say, I think you're totally right that both of those movements are about the future, which is I want a future where there's not this sound anymore. I want a future where there's not this, uh, this uh, you know, if, it's, if it were really hot in here and like we were all sweating, we'd be like, oh, yeah, I want a future where it's, it's cooler. Totally future oriented. And it's where all of Buddhism from the beginning to end is talking about being present, not having a mind in the past and the future. And so the very notion or the very act of greed and hatred is totally future past oriented or future oriented in that way. But if I were splitting hairs in semantics, if you were to delight in something, because I think there are schools of thought where you can simply delight in the existence, but you don't desire it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and Buddhism, I think, gets really misunderstood with this uh, interpretation translation game of desire and, and these things and then delighting in things. And Buddhism's... I think very clear about what it's talking about in terms of this act of clinging and desiring and that it's, it's a layer on top of what we would call like doing things, living, like, you know, enjoying. Buddhism is not, in my estimation, it's not as negative as people think. What they're talking about actually is that we're all having a bad time because of this desire clinging thing it kind of wants us to be having a better time it now i i don't ascribe to this to the happy happy school of buddhism that will make you more productive and all of that i think that's you know fraught with problems this notion of being more productive and getting more done at work and all that thing is very buddhist yeah i mean there's all kinds of things but there is this thing in buddhism and i've used this example many times where you know, if you were really looking forward to a movie and then and you, I mean, you were waiting all week to go to this movie and then you're at the movie and you're delighting in it and then the film reel breaks. It's then that the Buddhism comes in because if you, like the EKG machine, if you're like, all right, now what do you want to do? Like, yeah, that's done. What do you want to do now? But if you're demanding the manager to see the manager because this, I've been waiting all week to see this. and stuff, If you're, that's the desire. That's the craving. That's the problem, right? Not the watching. Not the enjoying that. This is 
past then too. Like it, like it's fine to re remember something and exactly. Things, but, but if you're getting into that like heavy nostalgia, like oh things were so much better then, you know, a week ago or ten years ago or whatever, and I wish it was like that then, and I really then now and getting into all that. Exactly, and that's what Buddhism I think is talking about is that activity of the mind. Yeah, but not the remembering things. It certainly doesn't want you to be ignorant of your past. How would you learn anything? How would you develop? Like you Buddhism's have a pleasant memory, and that's fine. Right. Just all like, ah, yeah, or the like or the the like um, you know the like oh I should have said this oh I could have I could have told him I could <laughs> and all of that is like you like where are you, dude? Right? You're in some fantasy land telling people off. It's like it's so much. Buddhism there, right? Where you're angry at somebody in the past and you're trying to... And yeah. oiling you in the future. Right, exactly. That's what Buddhism is talking about. But yeah, not living, delighting, and the doing the stuff, you know. But de de and de delighting is okay because delighting is present. I'm, I'm not trying to make the world other than it is. I'm delighting what comes in here. Also, a, a little healthy dollop of middle way, which is to say one person's delight is, is another person's desire it is up to one's individual to know healthy delight versus craving and wanting so then this is why the idea of being really present in this being here now is the same as being um sort of radically accepting or not accepting it then that's then i'm not being in it i'm wishing i'm thinking in the future of like how i wish it was either Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's why those are the same. Yep. Okay. I would agree with that. Yeah. Ideas, more ideas. Um, I have, I kind of wanted to end, it's a good place to end, on the notion of invincibility and unshakability. So there's a number of, of ways to interpret these adjectives. They come up a lot, in particular the one of uh, unshakable or immovable. Uh, a kala, I believe it is in Sanskrit, this immovable, unshakable. And there's sort of two, they're kind of like not competing interpretations, but two slightly different interpretations of what that means. The basic one is, you know, so much of what's being spoken about here is this desire thing, Right. And, and so much of what we've spoken about tonight is the, the projection of desire onto things, right? The projection of either something like use value, which is like, oh, that looks comfortable and I could sit on it, right? So I'm projecting onto something and then therefore it's a chair because of its use and its value and all of that. So there's that kind of projection. There's the, the desire... Um, in terms of wanting stuff, like if you've wanted something, I'm sure you've wanted something, there's the wanting of the thing. So what this is talking about, what Mahakachana has been telling us is in classic Buddhist fashion is to not do that, to not desire things to be the way they were in the past, don't desire things to be a certain way in the future, and don't even sort of have that pre present state. So a way to see this idea of, of unshakable or unmovable is, you know, kind of like, you know, if I were to take out the $20 bill and it's like, 
Yeah, you want, what, what are you willing to do for it? What are you willing to do for it? A lot of people are willing to do a lot for a $20 bill, right? And so there's a way in which if I were to hold up that $20 bill, you might project onto it all kinds of things that oh, I could do with it. You would be moved by it would be one way to say it, right? You, you, your body would be stimulated. Or, again, with money, it might be the exact opposite. You might think that's the root of all evil, and you might be sitting there going, get that away from me. I don't want to touch it and wash my hands out. That would be the other version of it, which is get away from me or get towards me. But the version that's being spoken about here is the one that's neither of those. And if you are truly not projecting onto that, either get away from me or get towards me, and you're truly just that, the idea is, is you're not moved by it. Therefore, you're unmovable, unshakable. You got Mara is dancing around you with all of your delights. They, he, Mara's got new cell phones over here. He's got all this and that. And he's like, what do you want? And the idea is, is that when you reach that point, when you don't want anything Mara has to offer, then you're not moved by Mara. You're immovable. Oh, and invincible. The, the idea is, is that, you know, especially old school Buddhism, old school Buddhism that has this idea that all of this, all of it is a source of suffering. That's it. All of this is just an opportunity to suffer. That's it. Right? So the idea is, is that I'm being, you know, the, the, the sutra uses the language of vanquished. I'm being vanquished by this stuff. I'm being destroyed by this stuff. This stuff is killing me because of the suffering. And maybe not this, you know, maybe not that, but there's all kinds of other stuff that I want, that I'm attached to, that I desire. And the idea is, is that it's vanquishing me. It's destroying me. But according to the Buddha, according to Buddhism, I have within me the ability to be invincible. And I can be invincible by not wanting what Mara is selling. Not wanting the things of this world. And going back to the example of the movie, and it, but it doesn't mean I, don't, I can't ring beautiful bowls and hear them and use them to do meditations. doesn't mean that. It's just saying don't, don't fall for Mara's trick and get wrapped up in it. All right? So that's one interpretation of the invincible, unshakable. There's another one. Again, these are related. They're not uh, competing. Um, there's a great term. Let's see. If I can remember it. Um, So, um, so there's this term called asamskrita dharma, an unconditioned, unconditioned dharma. Everything we've talked about tonight, fists, chairs, all the stuff, have all been samskrita dharma. And this, by the way, if you would like to know, 
this is the reason why I like to translate sanskara. So this is one of the five skandhas. I know there's a lot of uh, foreign terms tonight, but one of the five skandhas that I translated as conditioning, the fourth one before consciousness, is sanskara. And usually this is translated as volition in your average in your average book of Buddhism. It's translated as volition. There's a complicated reason why that's usually translated that way. I think it's really misleading. The Sanskrit is samskara, which means conditioning. It's the way your mind has been conditioned in terms of learning, in terms of emotional reactions to things. Um, as a child, you're shown imagery and, a, and pair it with feelings. Right? You're shown a breast and you're paired with that delightful feeling of the cessation of your hunger and this and that. So all of a sudden you're making connections between all these things in this world and building up emotions towards it. That's your conditioning. So you are your unique conditioning, the way you are conditioned. And Buddhism calls that samskara. And all these things, you, me, fists, chairs, speakers, all of that, are all conditioned. We're all samskara. But there's one or two, depending on the school of thought, there's one or two ah samskrita dharmas, things that are not conditioned. And they are definitely always nirvana. And sometimes akasha, which is space. And not like outer space, but more like the space between things, like space. There's a, this happens in Western philosophy too, from the, from the pre-Socratics on, that there's a notion that all of this has to be happening like in something, <laughs> somehow. There must be just space, and that it's not a thing, it's not conditioned, per se, it's not a, um, you know, a put together object like all the rest of this. It's the, it's the receptacle, if you will, in which it all happens. Some schools of Buddhism ascribe to akasha being an unconditioned dharma, but all schools of Buddhism ascribe to nirvana as being unconditioned. Now. But nothing to get in the way of your perceptions. Yeah, I think of it. Yes, but I kind of think of it more in that, like, uh, you know, either one way of thinking is like everything comes from something else. I came from my mother, and that was a complicated process, and that, and she came before she came before. So there's a way in which I was conditioned, physically conditioned in my mother's you you know womb, and then brought forth. But I was then conditioned by my environment, you were conditioned, and so me as me is totally conditioned, you as you is totally conditioned, this as it is totally conditioned, meaning it was formed, it was made from other things. Nirvana is not conditioned. It's not made out of anything, it's not from anywhere, it doesn't go anywhere, it is not conditioned. <laughs> so 
this is conditioned. So when we say in in Buddhism, you know, achieve nirvana. Yeah. I don't get how that relates to this. Because doesn't that mean enlightenment, sort of more or less? No, actually, um, in Buddhism, buddhi, buddhi, enlightenment is buddhi. <laughs> Is enlightenment. And nirvana, nir, uh, nirvana actually means, uh, if you don't know this, it's very helpful to know this. The word nirvana literally means to blow out. And it is the same blowing out, the same root as just to blow out like a candle. It means extinguished. Nirvana means extinguished, blown out, gone. That's what it, it means. And the analogy in Buddhism is, the classic analogy is imagining one's existence as like you're a candle. And your life force energy, your jiva, is the candle light. And the idea is, is that there's a candle over here that's not lit. And here's you blazing away. And the idea is, is that your life force energy will then ignite a new candle and there will be a baby born that's a new candle, new wax, new that, but it got your flame. It it's, now has life force energy because you transfer the life force energy. That's a Buddhist way of describing reincarnation is the transference of life force energy, but new wax, new body, new wick, but life force energy. And it keeps going and keeps going and keeps going until in life I'm blazing away as a candle. And, and what is the candle according to Buddhism? What is the flame? It's the flame of desire. The clinging is the fire. And so if in my life I can... The life force is desire? In Buddhism, it's desire. This is what makes Buddhism Buddhism is that the life force energy is desire itself. And so in midlife, you can and nirvana, blow out. It's, 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 it's a nice word, a nice analogy. You blow out your desire. And so you don't pass the flame on anymore. And so they say Buddhas are done. That's why they, this, the notion of once-returner, non-returner, it means you're flaming ain't lighting any more flames. But what's, I, for me, the, the rebirth stuff is whatever. What's really interesting about it is this idea of, of squelching your own flame. And then you're just done. But you're still alive. That's, again, we go back to our, our we're in the world, but awake, right? It's the calming and contemplation. Because it's not life force energy. It, it, it's yeah. I, I, I skipped a couple tracks there. Okay. Classically, the flame is your life force energy. Okay. Classically and classically, you pass that on. Okay. Buddhism came along though and doesn't believe in selves and life force energy. Okay. They believe in desire. They believe in clinging. And the Buddha's sort of one enlightened aspect of Buddhism is recognizing that the life force energy is actually desire. 
And the way this plays out in terms of reincarnation is because the reason why we keep coming back over and over and over again is because we love it here. We're totally masochistically in love with this place and we just are clinging to it so bad that once we die and we're in the bardo, we're like, I got to get back. I got to get back. And so it's the desire that keeps sending us back, not a, a, a life force energy that through some thermodynamic law can't stop and must keep. No, it's actually the desire that can stop. You, we could all do it right now. Desiring, not living. The goal should not be to stop living. It should be to stop desiring. Make that very clear. So the enlightenment is just like a realization of something? So nirvana as a blowing out of desire is this, it's called uh, nirodha. Nirodha is this cessation. And there's this idea in Buddhism that you can... Do this practice, stop desiring, and therefore reach this peaceful state of being. Like t- super blissed out, peaceful, tranquil, you know, whatever. You don't, you don't know how this world's totally operating. You wouldn't be the most equipped to explain it to other people. All these other things that might be products of Bodhi in terms of teaching other people, in terms of all kinds of uh, understanding how this world's operating. Nirvana, by way of, of stopping desire, is just a way to get blissed out in a way. But, you know, not as a pastime or a vacation, but as a state of being. So rather than dukkha, rather than anxiety, you could have tranquility just by relinquishing your desires. And you could do it accidentally, <laughs> is the other aspect of it, is that you could sort of just get bored with it all and all of a sudden have some really deep, enlightened kind of relationship without even knowing why that's happening. You might not even recognize, oh, it's because I've given up desire that I'm not suffering anymore. That would, again, make you very ill-equipped to share it with other people if you didn't even know how it happened, right? So I'm just kind of articulating what a difference between like calming down, cessation, nirvana. And then Buddhism is getting in, you know, gets into enlightenment to like understanding how this world is working to the point where you're seeing through it, like Neo at the end of the matrix, just seeing the operating program at work, not being mistaken by illusory objects and things. That's like Bodhi. We're usually talking Bodhi in Sunday nights. Because I don't do meditation, we don't do shamatha, um, so yeah, we're usually focused on the bodhi stuff. But. Where does excellence fall in? I've been wondering about the translation of excellence. That's such a random, <laughs> meaningless word, and I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. really short of enlightenment, nirvana, but what do they mean? Yeah. It last so last week it was the sing, the idea of the single night. Right, and I, I of course thought that that's an interesting one because of this idea of no past, no present. So, all we ever have is tonight, literally in that way. But the excellent, yeah. I mean, there's a, a, a tremendously long footnote to the title of the sutra that it used to be translated uh, something quite different, actually. Um, let's see. You know, it might give us some insight into the word excellent. So excellent is 
like a new and improved translation? Yeah, yeah. So he, huh. he says that he's changed it uh, to a single excellent I, which seems more likely, uh, likely to be correct. Uh, the words could be taken to represent respectively uh, the word night or attachment. And so in the past, he had it as, I think, a single, where does it say it? Like a single good attachment? Well, anyways, um, all right, that's getting way too involved. And we're after the hour. So excellent. Yeah, I mean, I like this sutra just because of, of um, its simplicity, the simplicity of that poem. And it, it lends one's, I don't know, what, what do you think of excellent means? You know, definitely better than an, an unenlightened, ignorant, suffering night, I guess, right? <laughs> but, um, a quick note, just to close it off. Uh, so I'm not here next week, so it'll be two weeks. January 6th, I'll be back. And I haven't totally decided on the sutras, but I'm going to start doing one sutra a night. We might not do the whole thing. It might just be like a line from a sutra and I'll introduce the sutra. There's just so many sutras. There's so many sutras. There's so, and like one's better than the next. And so rather than trying to like get through all of one or something like that, and because we get new folks kind of every Sunday, decided I'm going to do a different sutra each night starting in January. And... I'm going to do a progression, which means we're going to start with some really old Theravada ones and start working our way up again to some wilder ones. So it'll be looking at some ideas develop, ideas like dependent origination, but we'll look at it in its earliest little kernel of incarnation, and then I'll do a sutra to show you how that idea got branched out a little further, and then another sutra and, until it's all out. So January 6th is when I'll see you again. And I wish you all a single excellent night. I, I had to do it. I had to do it.